Welcome to this podcast, Biologics and Lupus, Why, Who, and When, brought to you by the GSK SLE Educators Network. This is a non-promotional disease education podcast intended for healthcare professionals only. Today, Dr. Angela Crowley, Dr. Walter Wynn Chatham, and Dr. Abdallah Giera will have a conversation on the use of biologics in lupus. Dr. Crowley is a consultant for the GSK SLE Educators Network, has received speaker and consultant fees from AbbVie and Horizon Therapeutics, consulting fees from Novartis, and has other disclosures for UCB Pharmaceutics and Exogen. Dr. Giera is a consultant for the GSK SLE Educators Network, has received consulting fees from Orenia Pharmaceuticals, GSK, Valenza Bio, Horizon Therapeutics, Trevere, and Alnylam. Educational grants from Chemocentrics, Kaneka, and Orenia Pharmaceuticals, and research support from Trevere, Chinook, and Valenza Bio. Dr. Chatham is a consultant for the GSK SLE Educators Network and was a local PI for lupus clinical trials funded by Amgen, GSK, Janssen, Novartis, Roche Genentech, Pfizer, and Viella Bio, and has consulted for lupus education initiatives funded by Orenia and GSK. And welcome to this podcast, where we will be discussing the use and timing of biologic therapies in lupus. We will be exploring the potential for biologics to address some of the major unmet needs in the management of lupus, including their potential to change the course of the disease. We will also examine which patients are ideal candidates for biologic therapy and when in the disease course they may be most appropriate. My name is Dr. Angela Crowley, and I am a rheumatologist at Hinsdale Orthopedics in Hinsdale, Illinois. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Wynn Chatham, a rheumatologist and professor of medicine at the University of Alabama, and Dr. Abdallah Giara, a nephrologist and associate professor of clinical medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The reason for our discussion today is that despite progress in the treatment of lupus over recent decades, there are still substantial unmet needs in the management of disease. During treatment, we should aim to introduce the most effective therapies as early as possible in the disease course so that we can prevent disease progression and organ damage rather than wait until the patient develops severe disease. This requires providers to have a good understanding of disease progression. Organ damage represents a major unmet need in systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, with almost two-thirds of patients developing chronic organ damage within 15 years of their diagnosis. Dr. Giara, what are your thoughts on the levels of organ damage that we see in patients with lupus? Thank you, Dr. Crowley. While patients with higher disease activity experience an increased risk of subsequent organ damage, patients attaining low activity state can accrue organ damage. And this is why we are seeing a trend to repeat kidney biopsies in patients with low activity states to assess for ongoing organ damage. Organ damage in lupus is typically irreversible and increases over time. One of the main causes of organ damage progression in lupus is the use of steroid. Data show that steroid dose is a significant risk factor when measured by SDI. This effect is particularly pronounced at high steroid doses. This suggests that one of the key treatment goals in SLE or lupus nephritis should be to reduce the use of high-dose steroid. And specifically in lupus nephritis, there is evidence that it can be effectively treated with much lower dose of steroid. 
This can be achieved by a multi-targeted therapy approach during the induction phase of a lupus flare. Well, I agree. We should aim to reduce steroid use if possible. However, I'd like to clarify and emphasize that steroids continue to be a cornerstone of treatment because of their rapid onset and potent anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive properties and relief of symptoms. Steroids absolutely have a place in the treatment paradigm for lupus, but we do need to be mindful of the drawbacks of their use. Yes, that's right. It comes down to a consideration of the benefits versus risk for each individual and weighing the benefits you describe against the substantial toxicity, which includes adverse effects, risk of irreversible organ damage like osteoporosis and cataracts, and damage to vital organ systems, such as the cardiovascular system. I agree, and to be practical with the current therapeutic tools we have, we cannot eliminate the use of steroid, and the question becomes, how much steroid are we using and for how long? Also consistent with what we are describing, current treatment recommendations for chronic maintenance treatment are that cumulative dose of steroid should be less than 7.5 milligram per day and withdrawn when possible. Despite this, almost two-thirds of patients are currently receiving a dose of steroid, almost double the recommended dose, and high dose of steroid are frequently prescribed in response to flares. Regardless of whether steroid-associated toxicity is a result of direct damage or just a marker of active lupus requiring higher doses of steroids, the continued use of high-dose steroids shows that a major unmet need is for treatments that can allow reductions in dose and reduce the risk of steroid-associated toxicity. Another unmet need is health-related quality of life. Patients with lupus have a lower health-related quality of life and often report impacts to a wide range of their daily activities, such as exercise, sleeping, working, and completing their day-to-day -day errands. This suggests that even with current standard treatments, more effective treatments are still needed. Yes, I would agree on that. And just thinking about patients I've treated over the years in terms of the things they most often struggle with, Disease-associated fatigue, as well as other constitutional symptoms, including mild cognitive dysfunction, tend to preclude patients from participating as fully as they would like with job activities, as well as avocational activities that they would enjoy with friends and family. Patient-reported quality of life and the impact of lupus differ depending on the phase of the disease the patient is going through. During the early phase of SLE, or lupus nephritis, flare, the most common report issues are fatigue, edema, and therapy-related adverse effects like irritability, insomnia, or weight gain. As the disease becomes more chronic, patients express frustration regarding their inability to participate in leisure activity and supporting their family. Thank you, Dr. GR. And I would also like to discuss mortality as a major unmet need in lupus. Dr. Chatham, would you say there's been sufficient progress in reducing mortality rates in lupus over recent years? No, I do not feel there has been significant progress, unfortunately. Although survival rates among patients with lupus have improved over time, rates of mortality are still almost twice as high in those with lupus compared with age and sex matched controls. This difference is particularly pronounced among those aged 16 to 24 years who are still relatively earlier in the disease course versus those 24 years and over. We need to tackle the disease as early as possible to prevent future disease progression and reduce the risk of mortality. So 
how about we talk a little bit about the current treatment goals of lupus, which reflect the unmet treatment need that continue to exist. We could summarize the key treatment goals of SLE as long-term survival, prevention of organ damage progression, improvement in health-related quality of life, and reducing stereotoxicity. Since kidney damage and lupus nephritis has a disproportionate impact on mortality and morbidity in patients with SLE compared with other organ involvement, it warrants separate treatment goals. Therefore, in addition to the standard SLE goals, lupus nephritis treatment goals include preserving kidney function. Importantly, these treatment goals align quite well with a recently proposed framework for disease modification in lupus. Dr. Shadam, would you like to describe the proposed disease modification concept in lupus? Of course. Uh, for many chronic diseases, a key treatment goal is disease modification, that is, modifying the underlying mechanism of disease. This can offer symptom relief by modifying underlying disease pathologies rather than modifying the symptoms themselves. Defining disease modification is also important to determine if therapies are effective, as well as providing standardized endpoints for clinical trials, as well as clinical practice. Until recently, no definition of disease modification in lupus or lupus nephritis had been proposed. This was addressed in a recent paper led by Dr. von Mollenhoven and published in Lupus Science and Medicine. In this paper, the authors proposed that disease modification in lupus should comprise of minimizing disease activity with the fewest possible treatment-associated toxicities and slowing or preventing organ damage progression. Importantly, these align well with the overarching treatment goals. And of course, it is also important to consider how we could measure and apply disease modification in clinical practice. The authors of the paper proposed to evaluate the components of disease modification at yearly time points until disease modification can be confirmed after year five. Thank you, Dr. Chatham. Dr. Crowley, from a rheumatologist's perspective, what are your thoughts on the proposal for disease modification in lupus? I really like the idea of evaluating disease modification at yearly time points. I think we'd all agree it's difficult to use disease activity scores at each visit in our lupus patients. I plan to change my practice by tracking the diagnosis date and then at yearly intervals take a bird's eye view of their disease process with them by using a tool such as SLEDATE to document a score and review the overall course of flares and steroids over the past year. It gives us a discrete time point to ask ourselves, have we met our goals or should we be doing something different? Yes, I agree. As a nephrologist, the paper described how we could use estimate GFR and urine protein creatine ratio as goals for assessment of treatment success. Throughout the disease, we are trying to achieve the lowest possible UPCR and stabilize the EGFR trend. As we are doing this, we will try to use the lowest amount of steroid and other immunosuppressive agents. Let's now discuss the potential for biologic to change the disease course. So, if we were to view achieving disease modification as a key treatment goal moving forward, we should consider what therapy options are most appropriate to work toward this goal. Dr. Crowley, do you feel biologic therapy could be a good option? Yes, I agree that biologics are a strong candidate to help us achieve disease modification in clinical practice. This is because they offer the potential to modify the underlying immunological mechanisms of lupus, which can alter the natural course of the disease progression and improve long-term outcomes. 
But as with all therapies, the proof should be grounded in clinical outcomes. Do the therapies reduce disease activity and accrual of organ damage? These are the key tenets to the disease modification definition described. Agreed. The pathophysiology of lupus is very complex and involves both the innate and adaptive immune system and many interconnecting components. Biologic could help us disrupt this complex network by modifying specific aspects of the immune system that contribute to disease activity and eventually cause organ damage. Would you agree, Dr. Shadam? Yes, I would agree. And to add to Dr. Crowley's point about modifying the underlying mechanisms of disease, data from clinical trials have demonstrated the safety profile of biologics and a reduction in disease activity. So the clinical data support the general idea that modifying the immunologic mechanisms of lupus can result in more positive treatment outcomes for patients. Yes, and together, this suggests that early use of biologics from the time of diagnosis could improve the effectiveness of treatment long-term and thereby provide steroid-sparing capacity, which would help us tackle the unmet needs that we discussed earlier. So if the use of biologics earlier in disease course could help improve outcomes and help to achieve disease modification, this raises the question of whether there are patient groups whose specific disease course might mean they would especially benefit from biologics. We'll now discuss the appropriate use of these biologic treatments. There are many aspects that might impact whether a patient is appropriate for biologic therapy. For example, we might consider the patient's history, current disease state, as well as their likelihood for future disease progression. Dr. Crowley, what else might be taken into account? Some biologics have demonstrated greater therapeutic benefit, for example, reduction in severe flares, steroid use, and health-related quality of life than standard therapy alone in patients with higher disease activity, anti-double-stranded DNA positivity, low complement, or higher steroid doses at baseline. Improvements can be especially observed for hematological, immunological, and renal domains. I'd like to point out quality of life in particular. All too often, we get a patient's objective symptoms improved and labs normal and think our job is finished. Meanwhile, the patient is still really struggling to function in their job and daily life due to symptoms such as fatigue. I see this as a real opportunity to at least initiate a trial of a biologic. The general characteristics of patients that may be most appropriate for biologics have been some topics of discussion. These may include patients who have certain genetic signatures or serology results, such as low complement levels and anti-double-stranded DNA, as Dr. Crowley, you alluded to. These indicate patients who might be at risk for disease progression, and so a biologic could be introduced earlier to help reduce this risk. Associations between biologic response rates and baseline genetic signatures have been observed in some phase three SLE trials, and such signatures could inform treatment decisions. Let's discuss the possible reasons that biologic use remains relatively low despite the potential benefits. It's striking that only 12.5% of patients with lupus are prescribed biologics in the U.S. And thinking about why this might be, in the current recommendations for use, biologics are recommended mostly as add-on therapies instead of first-line treatments in patients who do not respond to standard therapies. Also, many treatment recommendations are outdated and do not yet reflect recent evidence of advanced therapeutics. As an example, 
The American College of Rheumatology's most recent recommendations for lupus management were published in 2012. The low use of biologics has both patient and provider factors. For lupus nephritis patients, the onset of clinical response is delayed and might take few months or even longer. The patient might get discouraged, especially with the accumulation of therapy adverse effect and will discontinue the therapy early. Also, some aspect of organ damage progression is clinically silent, for example, worsening kidney damage. And the patient need to be continuously educated about the benefit of the therapy, encouraged to maintain it in order to achieve the treatment goals. From the provider's perspective, and specifically in the nephrology community, there is a perception that biologic are difficult to get approved. And the concern regarding access might be discouraging a lot of nephrologists from prescribing biologic when they feel it is clinically appropriate. I agree with these points, Dr. GR and Dr. Chatham. I'd also like to add that this could be due to the watch and wait practice. When physicians decide to continue with the current standard of care, even if patients are eligible for biologics. As I previously mentioned, when patients are struggling to maintain aspects of their quality of life, such as employment, they might start having trouble taking extra time off of work for appointments. All too often, they can eventually lose their jobs and then their insurance, which prevents them from coming back to us very often or even at all. I worry about my lupus patients who are lost to follow up this way, and I'm sure they have a poor prognosis. It's very important to have engaged discussions during this watch and wait period about quality of life because we know that biologics have been shown to be beneficial here. Let's discuss the use of biologics in lupus by looking at this from a clinician's perspective of a patient in their practice. Let's imagine that we have a 22-year-old female whose lupus was diagnosed only nine months ago, yet is presenting with several clinical signs of lupus, including worsening arthritis, alopecia, and generalized fatigue, and an inflammatory rash on her face. Her lab work shows that she has low complement and is anti-double-stranded DNA positive. In summary, we could say the patient is experiencing a severe flare. Altogether, the patient's disease manifestations add up to a SLE disease activity index, or SLEAD-A score, of at least 12, and could be even higher if the patient has evidence of underlying nephritis when we review her urinalysis. Currently, the patient's lupus is managed by a standard dose of antimalarials, steroids, and an immunosuppressant. She also has expressed concern about experiencing anxiety, insomnia, and weight gain because of her medication. Dr. Crowley, what do you think is important to consider when deciding if this patient is an appropriate candidate for biologic therapy? For me, one of the key standouts of this case you've just described is how severe the disease is presenting just nine months after diagnosis. I would like to see a biologic use in this case as they have demonstrated additional therapeutic benefit than standard therapies alone among patients with SLEAD-A scores of 10 and above. We are beginning to understand that biologics have the potential to modify the underlying immunologic mechanisms of lupus and associated inflammation, minimizing tissue damage and allowing for remission of the disease. As this patient is early on in her treatment journey, I think that incorporation of a biologic treatment to her standard therapy has the potential to change the course of the disease and reduce steroid-related toxicities later down the line. Dr. Chatham, what are your thoughts concerning whether the patient that you describe should be prescribed biologics? 
As Dr. Crowley says, patients with more severe disease do tend to respond well to biologics, so in that regard, I think the patient would be a good candidate. I also think that the positive outcomes seen in clinical trials, including reduced disease activity and reduced steroid use over time, may also be observed earlier on in the patient's treatment journey. This is based on their potential as disease modifiers, modifying the underlying dysregulation that can precede clinically apparent SLE manifestations. As with all therapeutic options, we need to weigh the benefits versus the risks. The patient has expressed concern for symptoms typically associated with steroid use, so I would be hesitant to increase her steroid dose much more. While caution should also be used for potentially increased infection risks following immunosuppression with biologics, infection risks from continued steroid use to manage disease may be even greater. Interestingly, evidence of lupus-associated autoimmunity can be detected serologically many years prior to any constitutional symptoms or specific tissue inflammation. So the evidence for immune dysregulation can be seen before the symptoms themselves become manifest. Thank you for your perspective. It seems that biologics may be a good choice for this patient. And I think another avenue for discussion is the possibility of biologic use even earlier in the disease, before severe manifestations have the chance to arise. Yes, I agree, and thank you both for your thoughts. In summary, I think we can agree that biologic aging are a good tool to help us overcome many of the unmet needs in the management of lupus and achieve treatment goals at the lowest possible dose of steroid. Evidence of their beneficial effect in the subset of patients that we discuss is encouraging, and it will certainly be interesting to see what future clinical trials demonstrate regarding the use of biologics in newly diagnosed patients and mild disease. This brings our discussion to a close. Thank you for listening.